It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. you listen to my commercial i didn't listen to it no what the Sorry. fuck dude uh, yeah i think it's it's one of my Do best you, in years okay i, I Lisa's will in it. it i i recruited lisa <laughs> <laughs> i was um i got tied i got sucked into um this story we're going to talk about tonight so i didn't right I didn't you found your own enter- entertain your your whims <laughs> sorry you found your own like pitch nineteen mystery to solve. That's what this is? Yeah. So last night was Halloween, and um, we went out trick or treating with some friends. And this is like a social event for me because normally I just stay home and do nothing. But so I got to see some other climbers, and uh, they were super curious if I'd heard about this story that kind of broke over the weekend about this eight year old who climbed El Cap and. Um, I'd kind of caught wind of some of the headlines and people, but I don't know, just, just based on the fact that there was like people just kind of in my social milieu talking about it and people were texting me links to the story. I, uh, I kind of, knew it was something that I had to dive into. Um, so I was hoping we could talk about that. Do you know anything about this story, Chris? I knew it had happened only because I was texting with a friend of mine, I think yesterday or maybe the day before, I don't know when this happened, but, um, and we were texting about something totally different. And then he was like, Oh, check this out. And he shot, he sent me a a picture of it, of the television screen. And so the Chiron on, on CNN that he caught when he took this picture, just said eight year old becomes youngest person to climb El Cap. And yeah. So, and that was it. I was like, Oh, cool. Go dude. And that was the end of my response to it and until you started texting me today and that's when you know that's when the 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 new new the new shit came to light yeah so we yeah so we're going to talk about that today um this story is kind of i'm surprised that uh you and i are both kind of so slow to to come to talk about this because this is all right in our wheelhouse chris there's l cap ethics there's kids who are of the age of our um, children. There's dad bods of which um, I have more than you. And these are like common themes on this show. So yeah, it's like, it's like like a perfect storm. (laughs) Um, Plus it gives us someone to, to um, it gives another person from Colorado Springs for us to dislike. Exactly. Yes. The home of the the, other, who are the other ones that, well, the home of the um, petroglyph, petroglyph bolter. Who, the Patrick like, Bolter is from yeah. Colorado Springs. Yeah. yeah, and this is there's some some similarities here, especially LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn profiles with claims of serious climbing experience. Yeah, <laughs> with probably false claims of serious climbing experience. But anyway, so anyway, not, this um, isn't the same dude, right? We know that. Uh, oh my god! Wouldn't I, it be amazing if it was? <laughs> This is uh, like his comeback. He's yeah, like, his comeback. I'm going to make everyone love you by forcing my kid to climb Hill Cap. <laughs> no, I don't think this is the same person. I think that um, Colorado Springs just needs to clean up their scene down there. Yeah, it seems like it. Anyhow, so um, let's get into it. What's going on? Okay. Like, how, how did I'm, this I'm go almost down? a little... Rem- 
I'm almost a little remiss to like mention the names of the people involved because there's so much self-promotion involved. That's a big part of the story that I'm a little bit... Let's not do it. Well, I- I'm going to because it'll, okay. it's just going to make it easier, but we're not going to include um, our usual links in the show notes to all of the things that I'm mentioning because I don't mm-hmm. really want to give um, this person any more attention than they've already solicited. So Okay. But basically, the the high level story is is kind of what we've already alluded to. Um, a father, his name is Sam. Oh, sorry, his name is Joe Baker, and his son Sam Adventure Baker. And yes, that's his middle name, as you will, um, as anyone who's seen the CNN reports on on this story, is uh, sort of gratuitously, you know, dwelled upon um, in the report. Sam Adventure Baker, this eight year old boy, climbed. El Cap via the Triple Direct. They're claiming that this is the youngest quote rope descent of the of the monolith, and um, this sort of comes on the heels of the last few years in which uh, you know there was a, two, at least two other ascents prior to this over the last three years, where in which kids who were like basically under ten years old have climbed El Cap and have kind of laid claim to this title of being the youngest person to do this. So eight years old, we're down to eight years old. You can be eight years old and climb El Cap. What do you think about that, Chris? What's your initial kind of guttural instinct or just reaction to hearing about an eight-year-old climbing El Cap, especially given that you and I both have six-year-old children? I'll give you what my my text was um, back to my friend. I just said, go little dude was my text. And then we kept texting about what we had originally been talking about. So yeah, there's like this mild kind of like, cool, good for him. You know, I, and I know knew full well that, you know, it's not like bro, little bro is out there leading some a four or something like that. So I just sort of chalked it up with like, Oh yeah. Somehow his dad talked him into jugging this thing. It seems impossible. I mean, miles is almost seven, but I mean, that is not something in his next year and a half that's going to happen by any means. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, great, cool. I, you know, I've already talked on the show about how I'm not that interested in like kids who are forced to climb at any level. Well, at some this- point, they, 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 I, I'll, I'll take that back or who are sort of led, you know, heavily into climbing by their parents um, because it's, you know, that's cool, but. Well, a lot of the themes that we're about to get into, Chris, kind of build on that discussion that we had a few episodes ago where we, we, um, you know, we kind of ruminated on, uh, Miles's trajectory as a, as like a rad adventure athlete and the pressures and societal pressures that you were kind of feeling being in a, you know, kind of a rad mountain town where rad kids grow up and go off to do rad stuff all the time. Right. There's a lot of that going on here. And, um, and the, and perhaps this is an example of maybe like that taken too far or taken in a, a direction that's just at least a little bit unsettling. Oh, um, you think Andrew Adventure <laughs> Bisharat? You think maybe this has gone a little too far? Like, so I mean, that was really like once I started getting the details. That's exactly what I thought of was that post I made and the discussion and the reaction of so many parents like being made uncomfortable by like internet spraying about their kids and like it's it's that you know like it's this hideous like godzilla monster version of that is what's Mm -hmm. happening with this is it's Mm -hmm. so gross i just had to bite my tongue with the adventure thing i didn't know that till you just told me that well so 
Um, yeah, just to like go back to what we were, um, what I just said about us having, uh, both having our own six year old children. I, I truly can't imagine climbing El Cap with my daughter in two years. Like I, I just don't see her being capable of doing that. And I wouldn't, beyond the fact of like not even wanting to like put her in that kind of situation, it just seems like a horrible experience that I wouldn't want to want to um, want to like put her through, especially if it's just about like getting some kind of cheap record or whatever. Yeah. Let's just not pretend that it's not like extremely dangerous too. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is. And there's like kind of not too many ways around that. So that, that would be the other thing is like, I mean, a- again, like how could you possibly, you know, believe that your child at that age is the one who's motivating this and not you. And if it's just you, then you're putting your child in harm's way for your own, you know, grandiose ideas of what's supposed to happen. And it just, I mean, it all just adds up to ick. Mm -hmm. So it begs the question of what kind of person would want to, um, to do this. Um, and, I that was kind of this occupied like hours of my day today was going down this rabbit hole of learning about who this dad is and um what makes him tick and I'm just kind of really fascinated in a morbid way about this character um so I'm going to try to just give you some of the high level gloss about some of the things I've discovered well first just the nuts and bolts of their ascent he and his son were um guided by two climbers who were not named in the CNN story. Um, CNN, by the way, is just like a terrible, uh, <laughs> a terrible news source. And it's, um, you know, when they, whenever they try to report on something that's in our wheelhouse, like climbing, they just inevitably fuck it up. And you can only imagine that, it, that that extends to like virtually everything else that they report on. But there's basically, they put out this story <laughs> and uh, news little like chintzy news clip with reporting on this ascent with four bylines on this story and um just overall like a terrible terrible piece of journalism but they they don't mention who the uh, who the guides are and you can imagine that they don't do that because what um you know technically it's illegal to guide in yosemite um unless you're part of the yosemite mountaineering school now um the the father uh joe joe baker joe uh contacted the yosemite mountaineering school to see if they would help him and his son achieve this like dream that his father apparently has had for his son for for a couple years in the making now of being the youngest kid to climb el cap and they turned him down because they were just like this guy is like completely unprepared and unready to do this so there's two guides. I, I kind of have some inside intel. I'm not going to mention who I suspect they are, but um, I've heard I've heard some some kind of in, inside info about who these who these guys are. So I'm not going to turn them on blast right now. But two guys were paid by this family to haul them up El Cap. They did all the leading. Um, they did all the hauling. They set up all the portal ledges and so forth. And so just that on its face, what do you think about that aspect of the of the ascent because this is a point of contention with some people in the climbing world insofar as can you say you've climbed el cap if you've like literally not even like you know 
I guess figuratively not even touch the rock. Like you've literally just like been on your ascenders and jugged up the route. Do you, do you think that's a, a way to validly claim that you've you've done El Cap, Chris? I've been thinking about this all day, and like, I mean, yes, sort of like with an asterisk. You know, there's certain people who are only capable of climbing El Cap that way, and we wouldn't we wouldn't deride their ascent. You know, someone who's disabled or something like that isn't going to lead necessarily. It, it depends on who they are. You know, so it's like, and that I mean, that is a guided ascent. Like very very seldom in any capacity does a guide let their client lead unless it's a very close client client that they've they've climbed with for years and years and years. So you know, any Exum ascent is going to be the person following, obviously not necessarily jugging, but you know, no one's no one's up there leading anything on like an Exum ascent. There's thousands of those a summer or whatever. So, yeah, I'm a little leery to just say no, it's bullshit. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm 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 kind of with you. Um, I I you know I, I thought about some of the you know disabled climbers and their ascents that that kind of came to mind because that's kind of the only way that um you know some people who've been who can't walk and so forth have, have climbed El Cap. So you wouldn't want to take anything away from those folks. Um, but the other, I, I think the more interesting thing to dwell on is um, what is the real difference between what this kid did and what basically every Everest climber has done, which is just jugged up a fixed line, you know, putting one foot after another fixed lines that have been established or, you know, put up for them by guides. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like a really similar parallel, I think, with with Everest in that sense. As usual, it's not just black and white. You know, it's like, what kind of following was it? Was it just fixed lines? Were they pulling gear? I mean, following pitches and cleaning and doing pendulums and and being part of the hauling team and all those sorts of things, I think, you know, starts to add weight to the idea that somebody climbed the route versus just jugging a fixed line that's in place just to get from one belay to the next. Mm-hmm. Often, I hope with this little kid on belay, please God, assume that eight-year-old Sam was on belay while he was jugging. But yeah. that's also part of this whole pirate guiding thing is one of the reasons it's illegal is because there's you know no real uh, standards as to what goes on when, when someone's quote-unquote guiding, which means they just got paid to do this um, with no official like certifications or anything like that. Yeah, um, there's videos on their Instagram accounts that kind of show that, or at least I see a couple of ropes, it appears that maybe there's a blade involved. Either way, I think that part's kind of irrelevant to the bigger Mm -hmm. picture that we're going to continue to to probe here. But So anyway, this guy, the father, Joe, has, um, he's kind of been shamelessly spraying about this. Like there's like this whole big eight minute video that he created that's super like kind of uncomfortable and cringy to watch about how talented his kid is and has always been as a climber, you know, like, you know, there's like the requisite video footage of, of, um, this, this little kid, this kid is like a, you know, a one-year-old, you know, climbing up into his crib and so forth. And, um, you know, with the, the parents and, and just gasping admiration at, at their, their son's like, you know, prodigious climbing ability at such a young age which um as you know (laughs) is like sort of standard for basically any kid like every kid climbs and they do so in 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 those exact kind of ways um and so anyway it's all been kind of leading up to this one thing to mention here is also that 
been raised, he's been kind of using this ascent to kind of shine light on things that he's raising money for. Like it's all directed to this one website and this guy has like tons of websites. Like he's kind of a grifter in, in that sense, but he's, he's raising money and it's unclear exactly where the money is going toward the web. The official website says that if you donate to, you know, to support this adventure, it goes to something called the Sam adventure fund, which raises funds to make films that inspire parents to adventure big with their kids, according to the tagline. So essentially into his, his filmmaking pocket to continue doing what he's been doing. But then in some interviews, um, as was pointed out in a, an article written in the San Francisco Chronicle, he's saying that this money is going to go to a charity called America's Kids Belong, which you know supposedly helps uh, foster children find forever families. So there's some discrepancies there about what how this how this um kind of whole ascent is being marketed, how it's being used, how it's being leveraged to raise money. You know, this guy has clearly a knack for kind of self-promotion. Um he's savvy on social media despite you know I wouldn't say he's got a large following on any of his accounts, but he's got lots of accounts and he has lots of websites and they're all very tailored in this like kind of interesting language that I'm interested to talk about with you about how uh adventure and climbing are are kind of this conduit to you know self actualization self fulfillment and like you know higher ability and it's kind of appealing to this this idea that people through supporting him and his ventures it can kind of he's kind of like this thought leader this like visionary dude who's who's out there doing like living this like authentic adventure some life with like like a family that is supportive of this lifestyle and this kid who's like gung ho about doing all of this. So anyway, um, again, one of the things that piqued my interest in this today is that, um, was not just the flood of texts I got, but I also got some Instagram DMS from climbers just totally unsolicited being like, Hey, are you guys going to talk about this? <laughs> one of them is they a knew guy, it was in our wheelhouse that, yeah, you know, they're like, is, these guys, this is exactly the type of shit they do. Exactly. Let's serve this one up to them. So um, one guy, uh, I'll leave his name out, but he he was actually on El Cap when, and kind of crossed paths with their climbing team on Heart Ledge. And, um, and, and as a side note, he, he mentioned also that he was very excited about the Pitch 19 episode and <laughs> that Honold's currently on El Cap working on pitch 19 with the idea of doing the South a free in a day via, via the pitch 19 route. So I think that there, we're going to have a pitch 19 part three Dude, coming part up, three. Coming up. Cause we're, we're going to have to talk about it again. Maybe oh, we'll man, get Honold so to talk about it. God, that would be amazing. Except yeah. for I blame Honold for this whole thing, by the way, <laughs> this whole thing with this kid. And yeah. It's all, it's all, you know, let's all trace it right back to fucking free solo. The movie. Um, guaranteed anyway keep going uh, yeah let's 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 come back to that one so anyway so um this guy he painted a very different picture than what was kind of portrayed in the cnn reports and in the media that kind of came out in the aftermath where you know it was just like this kind of happy you know great time with with a father and a son up on up on the big stone and um i'll just read you what he wrote his dad was one of one of the most insufferable losers I've ever come across in climbing. He was quizzing his kid 
okay, remember our Instagram handle? Say it back to me. On the way up, and every single person they came across, his dad would say, follow us on Instagram. This is history. As a kid cried behind him, you know, as he looked at us and says, there's not, there's, um, there's nothing as amazing as rock climbing with your dad, right, son? And my partner said, I think you mean rope climbing, man. It was just a terrible interaction overall. Yeah, he also mentioned this detail about how after the son would start jugging up the line, the father would clip into the fixed line that his kid was on and start jugging on them, but he would essentially trap his child against the rock by pinning him <laughs> on the rope. And the 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 two guides kept being like, dude, you're going to hurt him. Get off the rope. <laughs> like, stop doing that. So it sounds, this um, is sort of an unflattering portrait of, of, of maybe the, closer to the reality of what, what this was like. Wait, what was the last line? Fuck this idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another part of like kind of unflattering interactions with this guy, Joe, the father, came from our friend of the pod, Tom Evans, the uh, El Cap Report photographer who's been stationed on his perch by the bridge uh, with his 400 millimeter lens shooting El Cap for as long as I can remember. And he got into an altercation um, with the dad at the mountain room bar like the day before, a couple days before they started their climb because he had seen a lot of this pre-spray going on. And in some of his El Cap Report blog posts, he was really critical of of the dad and using terms like calling this this whole ascent the big hoax or the big lie like kind of evoking some some jargon from our our uh, you know our political landscape at the moment um just basically saying to the something to the effect of like what they're doing isn't really climbing no cap and you're kind of you have no uh integrity if you're saying that you've done you know el cap via these tactics and and basically you know fuck off and you're using your kid to uh promote your own yourself and you know your own attention so they got into an altercation he he says he didn't hold back he was like honest that he was like downright mean to the dad and just let him have it so so altercation you mean by altercation you mean verbal verbal yeah yes. yes Yeah, he didn't punch the dad in front of this eight-year-old boy or anything. <laughs> but like you know, it's interesting. I, I just want to put a little note on on Tom's role in not just this, but um, in a, a lot of in a lot of ways, he's kind of remained this like I don't know this sort of sentinel for all these ethics we've been talking about. Because with him down there, and he has his ideas about what valid ascents are, and he comments. You know, on style, not necessarily negatively or positively, but you know, his his reports talk about style, and it's it's kind of like this guy keeping everybody honest in a lot of ways um, about what goes on up there because he he sort of sees it all. He's like big brother, eye in the sky, and um, you know, he's got a pretty clear idea of, I mean, what he thinks appropriate ethics are, and and obviously that came to the fore with this particular altercation. Mm-hmm. You know, he pointed out that he watched them during their three or four days. It doesn't actually matter how long it took, but whatever it was, he watched them pretty studiously and said that the uh, dad and the kid didn't really even touch the rock. Like they were just on the fixed ropes the whole time. I think that they they started the route just by jugging the um, the hall lines up to Heart Ledge uh, to do the triple direct. So it was already like there wasn't any 
like the guides got off easy, you know, like they, they did the first third of the, you know, the, the wall just, um, just on the fixer ups that were already there. Can you say you've climbed El Cap just if you take the first 10 pitches off the, the bottom of the wall and just jug up the, the fixer ups? No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. That, yeah, you can't skip it. Yeah. And basically, I mean, for people who don't know that the landscape, if you climb up, you know, usually the, the, um, in the case of the triple direct, it would be the free blast. Most people come back down via what's called the hard highway. Um, and that's generally fixed with, with permanent fixed ropes that then you would haul your stuff up to that point. So you can climb the free blast, the first 10 pitches or 11 pitches, whatever it is without your, your haul bags and stuff, come back down to the ground and then get your stuff and bring it up or put it up there ahead of time and climb to it. But either way, it's seen, you know, you have to climb that first 10 or 11 pitches. I think most people would agree on that. So I spent the day like kind of getting obsessed with who this guy Joe Baker is and just ruminating about his personality and the things that I learned about him. And I'm not quite sure I can really put my finger on exactly what this is, but I've definitely recognized a kind of um, cliche or pattern of some kind with this uh, very hyper-religious goody two-shoes in a sense, like white American family that's very online, kind of very like influencer type people. And I don't know if if, if I'm going to get to the bottom of exactly what this archetype is, but there, if it, if it exists, and this, this guy certainly seems to embody some of that. So it's like everything that he does, like all of the websites that he has, all of the businesses that he's supposedly the CEO of, this ascent and the websites that he's created to promote his son's climbing and ascents of El Cap are, they're all shrouded in this like very grandiose language of adventure and um, affirmation. And it's like he's, his, like his life goal is like trying to become this like human incarnation of, of like an affirmation, like a positive, Mm -hmm. you know, hallmark card or something, but like with this adventure inflected twist to it. So apparently he met his wife rock climbing in Wyoming. He proposed to her while they were skydiving together. And against all odds, they bought a Sprinter van, you know, on a credit card that, you know, a van that they couldn't afford, but they were so moved to to um, embrace this like adventurous lifestyle that they, they splurged and bought this van and moved into it and started uh, traveling around the country doing pro, um, pro-life anti-abortion activism in their van. And I'm not, it's unclear exactly what they were doing, but it, that was part of of it and it turned that kind of turned into one of uh Joe's first businesses which is called Save the Storks which is a group that basically parks sprinter vans or buses outside of abortion clinics and inside of these vans are ultrasound machines it sounds like women who are on their way to have an abortion are kind of lured into into these vans where they can get an ultrasound and see the the miracle of life you know, before them and, and have a change of heart. We can probably imagine that Sam was conceived in the Sprinter van. <laughs> right? It was quite an adventure that night. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, so, you know, you look at this website again, it's all, it's all written in this, 
uh, language of these kind of like origin stories. Like here's this guy who and his wife who, you know, set off to like have a, the adventure of a lifetime. And here they are doing this thing that they're really passionate about, which is like saving, saving, uh, you know, women from having an abortion. And again, it's like all of this like myth making and storytelling is like woven into everything that I read about this guy. Like apparently there's a story about him as a kid, as a fourth grader who first caught the knack for changing people's minds about abortion by some kind of contest in which he could win a bike. And the kid who could like go door to door the most and convince the most people to you know, be persuaded to the pro-life side would win this spike. And so if this all sounds like bullshit, it, it, it probably is, you know, like there's, there's a lot of this, like it's, it's, it's with everything that I read with him. And so, um, anyway, so there was the save the storks that he was part of. He was his, com- he's now, um, apparently the CEO of some company called superhero sidekick, um, which helps CEOs like scale their businesses. It's kind of like a, a B2B kind of company of some kind. And they also have a vacation rental home business in Colorado Springs called Adventure Homes. And again, on Adventure Homes, there's this whole big overwrought story about how the name of the business is named after their son, Sam Adventure, who, you know, was named, you know, in, in, out of this like deep passion that the, the the parents have for their um you know for for this adventurous life and they just want to share this and and by the way you can like rent these homes on their website or whatever so it's all like it's all this like very grifty way of like turning these things that we talk about as climbers in this kind of sacred or at least like per like meaningful way and you know just about living kind of like an adventurous dirtbaggy lifestyle trying to climb with integrity treat adventure with integrity of some kind and it's all like kind of wrapped up in the in, in all of these money making enterprises which this guy has kind of listed is is a, a ceo of, of of various you know websites i was just kind of fascinated by this whole thing like there's this like weird you know kind of I guess weird isn't the right word, but at least evangelical Christian component to it that's manifest through this like pro-life activism. There's using, you know, his son and his family and, you know, this sport that we all love as a way of, of kind of promoting his businesses or giving some kind of like authenticity or credence to his, his businesses through this uh, storytelling that he's doing and yeah and so we, we're seeing that now and like it, it seen it, it certainly appears like a lot of the the publicity that has come out in the wake of their ascent of el cap last week has been um you know kind of a way to for the father to just kind of promote himself and so i don't know i i'm kind of left with a really sour taste in my mouth about this whole thing chris what do you think well, I mean, I've been thinking about this too. It's like, you know, we, we have a, a, a friend of ours whose daughter and him climbed El Cap. And for a moment, she was the youngest person to climb El Cap. And it's sort of the same story, technically, as their ascent. Um, but it just landed differently because, you know, we all knew that this young woman, you know, we knew personally that she actually was really a climber. 
um, Mike's a guide, you know, it, it all kind of fit with their life. And it made a moment where they were like, yeah, I think she's the youngest. And that was the last we ever thought of it. And it's like the way this thing is wrapped up is really the problem. You know, if this dude had hired some guides and climbed a cap and, you know, with his kid, like, and we never knew about it, like fantastic, you know, maybe they did enjoy themselves in those portal edges or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's all the extra stuff that's kind of come about from it. Yeah. Um, I mean, our, our friend Mike and his daughter, uh, Selah were, she was briefly the youngest climber to, to do the nose. And, um, that came on the heels of Scott Corey from 2001. I don't know if you remember him and that story, but he was a 12 year old who climbed the nose with Tommy and Beth and, um, Steve Schneider and maybe some other people when he was 12 years old. And, um, and, and he did that like right before nine 11. And, um, there was kind of this like big discussion about, I don't know. It was just kind of like a weird moment at that time. People were like, what, like, is, is this okay for the young, like, do we really want to see the youngest climber to climb the nose? Is that a thing? But anyway, that kind of all kind of got lost because, um, nine 11 happened like literally like the next day. And um and then he ended up doing the nose like a month later to raise money. Uh, he did it with Tommy and Beth right. to to raise money for like first responders or whatever. And then that and then that kind of um that idea of being the youngest to climb El Cap kind of faded into oblivion for twenty well, years. It's funny that we forgot about that because I mean, who doesn't know about Scott Corey's meteoric climbing career that came after that? <laughs> it's you know what's interesting is that you said that is because i was like i wonder whatever happened to that guy and i i texted um beth uh rodden today and i was like hey do you know if scott Corey is still climbing like is he whatever happened to him and she she um said that she thinks he is and he's you know just like a regular dude who just climbs for whatever cool um yeah so good for him and uh our Sela, uh who you know I think that she's a little different in one case in one way she's different is that she actually led some of the pitches on the nose. And so that automatically I think elevates her status over, over just a, a kind of quote unquote rope descent as the, as this um, new term of art is being used by, by this family. And she's actually, a. I mean like personally we both know her and she's like a legit climber. She's like a, a young I don't know. She was climbing like five twelve when she was, you know, nine or ten or whatever. She's like really psyched on climbing. She's a really good climber, and she wanted to do this. This was her idea. This mm-hmm. wasn't a seed that her father had planted. You know, as far as I can tell, it, it wasn't something that he had been making YouTube videos about for years, coming up to her her age to 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 do this. So, I think this came from her, and it was her idea, and then you know, her, her record was like short lived. Like we, I think at some point on this show, we ruminated about how, um, some other kid like one up to a year later <laughs> or like mm-hmm. six months later and was, became the youngest kid. And now we have yet another youngest kid. And so I, th- I think this leads into a, a question. I was curious to hear your take on, you know, Everest had the same problem, um, where it was kids as young as 13, maybe 12. I'm not sure if they got younger than that, but we're climbing um, Everest and eventually Nepal was like, fuck that. You have to be 16 years old to climb Everest. And they put an age limit on who could step foot on the mountain. 
What do you think about a similar policy for LCAP? Well, obviously, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna in any way endorse having some sort of gate towards you know towards stopping somebody from doing something like this. I mean, there is no permit, so you know, for all we know, there could be a seven year old up there right now. But I think one of the purposes of doing what we're doing right now is to to just maybe like create a bit of a roadblock to the next epic dad, you know, because it's going to be a dad. Like a mom would never do this to their child. Yeah. So, um, you know, the next epic dad who's been scheming uh, maybe can like have a moment of self-reflection if this one gets like universally dissed. Having thought about this a little bit today, I'm I'm actually, and maybe this is contradictory to our recent discussions mm-hmm. about permits on LCAP and and rules and any kind of you know any kind of like strictures or rules that would come down from the man in Yosemite. But I I could see myself really endorsing um, some kind of age age limit on on LCAP. You know, I I think like fifteen or sixteen seems like an appropriate it would just put an end to this obvious lunacy of like people forcing kids who are increasingly younger into these kinds of record setting gimmicks to that are clearly just about their, you know, the parents own glory. And so I don't know. I, I just think that it seems obvious to me that I would never, you know, having an experience as a father, I know my daughter isn't old enough to make a decision like, to understand the risks involved with climbing El Cap. And I, even if she, like she wants to drive my truck and there's a reason I don't just let her do that on I-70, <laughs> you know, like it's, but, but like if, if that limit, if that rule limit for driving, uh, you know, wasn't 16 years old, you know, then you could easily see parents like getting the fucking dumb idea that it would, that they, that their kid could be the youngest kid to like, set a speed record on you know going from uh grand junction to la cannonball run yeah exactly (laughs) and so i i think that that kind of thing needs to just have a short shelf life i think that any kind of rules that might limit that kind of thinking i would be in favor of i think social stigma can be a big part of this Mm -hmm. and sort of like what's happening with this like because i mean you know other than climbers saying stuff about this i mean the san francisco chronicles article um which was kind of you know finally a a, an article that didn't just take the bullshit hook and sink it into their lip you know um you know called him out on this and it's not a flattering article It, it points out all these different issues with this and um you know i think that kind of press would be sufficient um so to speak i i mean we'll see but but yeah, it's it's it is definitely like a, a road of insanity to just try to be getting younger and younger because I mean, what's the logical point? You just to hook a twenty five twenty five pound baby in your backpack and and jug up the lines, right? Well, it's funny because that's what um, in this article Tommy Caldwell is more or less quoted as saying like. What's the point? Like I could have put my son as a one year old in a hall bag and and just gone up the nose. <laughs> And, which is like a funny idea to think about. 
But shout out to uh, Greg Thomas, who wrote that article for the San Francisco Chronicle. He did. He actually did some due diligence, and and I thought provided some much needed skepticism about this topic that was uh, woefully absent on CNN and ABC and all of these other junky news uh, sources that, for some reason, just are, are increasingly just publishing this fucking garbage, like climbing spray from you know from low grade people like this guy to you know even some professional climbers what do you think chris when do you think you're going to climb el cap with your your son i think at this point never but uh i mean i i <laughs> <laughs> i mean we'll see but uh i mean it's also going to be the other thing is, is as he ages in i'm going to age out so you, there's kind of this gap but i mean it's to me it's not about how old they are it's about where the motivation comes from and 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 again you were talking about how this story has so much of our you know our sort of um hobby horses in it and that same one of like why is the kid climbing is they climbing because they love it and is this some something they dreamed of is this something they dreamed up and asked their dad to help them do it or is it something that's driven by the parents and that's that you know Aside from this El Cap thing, like all sorts of climbing could be talked about in that way as we have. And so it's like, to me, if, if miles, you know, I don't know when this would happen, but it would be a few years from now said, yeah, this is really cool. What you did and how do you do it would be a start to me showing him some of the things that need to happen and and let it go from there. But it would have to come from him. And, and that is the, the, the true ick factor and, and the revealing message you got about this kid being in tears up there. And it just doesn't work. Nothing, yeah. nothing about it works. I think that the appropriate age to climb El Cap with your child is when they lead all the pitches and you can only jug the ropes behind them. <laughs> Lynn Hill once called today's guest, quote, the best female sport climber in the history of rock climbing. Starting at age 14, Katie Brown was winning international competitions and notably onsetting such hard routes as Omaha Beach and the Red River Gorge. Her new book is Unraveled, a climber's journey through darkness and back. I was thinking about how I come on here and I'm like, okay, I know you personally, but also I know you historically. I know who Katie Brown is. And I sort of, as someone my age and probably, you know, a good people who are probably a decade even younger than I am, certainly will come on this and know who Katie Brown is. And I find it sort of shocking, but true that there is actually a generation of climbers or maybe a couple that don't exactly know who you are and what you were in climbing um which is you know like upsets me because i'm like she's katie brown don't you know who katie brown is and was as a climber um so can you sort of position yourself um you know the book is a lot about darkness and and how it relates you know to your family but also to your climbing but um there certainly are some high points of uh, of your climbing career is there are there things that you could tell us that would position again you historically that you're you know that you're proud of that that some of the stuff that you accomplished as a climber um you know starting in the 90s and and through the aughts because um you were the best 
the best, at least, competition climber in the world for several years, and also one of the best on-site outdoor climbers, you know, for for a while there as well. Sure, yeah. Like, so for people who don't, like younger people who don't know my history, because it was brief. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I started climbing in Kentucky in probably like around ni- 1993-ish when I was 12 or so. And then a couple years after that, I think I was 14, and um, some friends of ours at the gym were like, your daughter should try um competing she'd do pretty good so we were going to Colorado Springs and I don't know like for how long there had been junior competitions before I did one but I don't think they were around for that long I think they were pretty new at the time we were going to Colorado because I was born in Colorado so we were going back for like a vacation or whatever and um decided to do a junior regional I believe it was at a climbing gym in the Springs in Colorado Springs. And I ended up randomly winning that one. And so then we found out that that qualified you to go to junior nationals. And then, so we decided to go to that. And then I ended up winning that one. And then we found out that that qualified you to go to junior worlds. And so I went like a bunch of American kids went to junior worlds in France and I ended up winning my age group in that. And then um, by that point, I was 15. And um, I only ever did like a handful of junior competitions. So after that, me and some other teenage competitors were invited to the X Games as wild cards, even though we didn't have a ranking in the ASCF, which was like the climbing federation at the time. And I ended up winning the X Games as like a wild card. And so then that got me invited to an international invitational competition in Italy called Arco. And so I went to that and ended up winning that. And then from there, I just kind of took off and had a life of its own. I had a pretty crazy competition string I went straight into adult competitions because we kind of like as a family decided juniors weren't, I don't know, quote unquote, challenging enough. And I don't really know if whose decision that was. It was just kind of what happened. And plus at adult competitions, you made money and traveling was expensive and all of that stuff. Um, But it also kind of caused a bit of a, from my understanding anyway, I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but a bit of a hubbub about junior like kids competing in the adult competitions and brought some changes about to the competition world yeah so that was my competition background um I stopped competing pretty randomly and suddenly I think in like 2000 when I was like uh 19 I think and in terms of outdoor climbing, I just, I always climbed mostly outside when it, where I lived um, in the South when I was competing, there wasn't a climbing gym after we moved away from Kentucky. So outside was it. And so that was where I trained, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you can call it training, but that was where I trained. And um, I always preferred on sighting. I had a really hard time with the mental game of red pointing. And so I preferred to just not try it. 
I liked on siding. It, it worked for my mindset. And so, yeah, I was able to do some cool outdoor on-sites as well. Yeah, and if I might sort of frame it historically for people listening and and wondering kind of where this fits, you know, you're talking about fellow teenage climbers, competitors. The cohort was people like Chris Sharma and Beth Rodden. and, you know, Tommy Caldwell was involved. So, you know, and the interesting thing I think about it and the where it really fits historically is that you were part of this wave of, of young climbers that you know, essentially started crushing competition scene and, and started competing with adults and beating them. And, and I think we consider that pretty common now to have very young or high teens kind of competitors that are the best. You know, you, you kind of alluded to things changing after your generation. And uh, I think it's important to note yeah. that, that it wasn't always like that, but it's kind of like you were the first wave, um, this kind of fireball that that smashed into competition climbing um, and changed it in a lot of ways. Um, and also with your, your outdoor climbing, you know, it's nitty gritty around like grades and downgrading and things like that that have happened over the years. You certainly had done at least a couple of the hardest things uh, ever on sited outdoors at the time um, by a man or a woman, actually. And again, like, you know, splitting hairs about who did what when. Um, you were one of the, you were certainly, <laughs> you know, one of the, two or three best on-site uh, sport climbers in the world um, for, for a time there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say when I was competing, everyone was or like 99% of people were at probably at least a decade older than me. And um, I started competing internationally right away. And so I was usually almost always, um, if not the only American, there would be like one other maybe um, who was considerably older than me so or it was chris would be the only the other right, american yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's it's such an um you know your story chris's story beth's story they're all really fascinating in a way because they just show where climbing was headed and you know 30 years later 20 years later it was we kind of have come to see all of the trends that that you and your cohort uh, pioneered come to fruition in a way like with the Olympics and with competition being just this more mainstream thing. And, and just with the idea that teenagers, um, can really climb at an exceptionally high level thanks to gyms and so mm -hmm. forth. And so I imagine, um, you know, you kind of peeled back from the sport to some degree, but what's your, I'd love to just hear your like high level thoughts on what climbing looks like today you know, how it's grown over all these years? Yeah, honestly, I didn't follow climbing like at all for many years um, after my daughter was born. And so I had no idea what was what, who was who. I didn't really know anything about it until um, the Olympics. And I was like, oh, I want to watch climbing in the Olympics because I remember talking about like, what if climbing got in the Olympics and I could go to the Olympics and like... I remember that. And so I wanted to see climbing in the Olympics. And then I kind of had to like introduce myself to all the athletes who were competing in that because I didn't know any, really any of them. And so that was all new and kind of finding out about the modern climbing scene and the, or the modern like competitive climbing scene. And I still find it pretty fascinating when there's like coaches and training don't they train? Don't they, they have like they have a place to train, right? In like Salt Lake City or mm -hmm. something. Yes, that's right. 
they have like physical therapists and like <laughs> all this stuff. It's so crazy and so cool. I love it. I think it's awesome. Um, and I'm glad that those climbers, those young climbers, especially have all those resources available to them. I think it probably makes a world of difference in the, um, in the realm of mental health <laughs> and it's probably a lot different than just hanging out at the mother load, um, the Olympic training center. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, some like random gym in Europe <laughs> being like, oh my God. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> so, so Katie, you know, we've, we've just kind of outlined some of the highlights of your, your extraordinary career back then, um, including the, I'd be remiss not to mention your site of Omaha beach at, at um at the mother load but yeah you kind of alluded to some of the struggles you know that you'd experienced over these years what were the things that you were struggling with was it the celebrity like just kind of being this like celebrity young climber who is getting all this attention and pressure to compete and perform what was it that was that was causing you duress at that time behind the scenes um, honestly, there was quite a bit of dysfunction at home, and um, so that contributed a lot to trying to navigate, you know, what was happening in the climbing like part of my life. Um, and I go into that in my book pretty in-depth, just kind of what that was all like. And there's a lot of, like, religious factors. Um, I had a pretty serious eating disorder. And yeah, there's just kind of a lot of pieces going on that led to it all feeling, being like pretty, feeling pretty out of control and pretty overwhelming. You know, you kind of alluded to some of the stress at home. I understand that that, that your mom was part of that uh, stress for you. Uh, just in, in terms of the writing experience of, of getting this book out, you know, um, you know, writing about our loved ones and our family members is, is a tricky subject that, you know, writers have struggled with forever. What was that process like for you in terms of just thinking about how to, you know, talk about people in your life and, um, in an honest way and, and share your perspective about, about people who you're close with? It was incredibly challenging, incredibly challenging and still is Still feels very challenging knowing that there's potential for people to read certain things and certain, you know, figures are still scary, even though you're an adult. And so that still feels really challenging. There's also a lot of cultural norms about moms and mothers and you know, you only have one, which I'm aware of, <laughs> um, and how how you want to approach that. And um, I would say I worked really hard to um, <clears throat> to not just point fingers or um, cast blame, but to also kind of like reflect on my own contribution to the things that I did and that happened. And there's a certain amount of like downplaying certain things because you want to preserve the feelings of those that you're writing about. And so there's that. So there's just a lot of factors that go into it. Um, Just, yeah, trying to be 
as honest as possible, but also as like um, fair as possible, knowing that, you know, it's, it's memoir. It's everyone's memory is different. So yeah, I worked really hard to try and be as accurate as possible. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds obviously by the tone of your voice that it was a difficult process um, and having talked to you before about these things. Um, so tell tell me a little bit about how, you know, you sort of made the decision to do it, for one thing. Um, you know, you've, you've had these stories in your head. You've had these feelings in your head. You've had this trauma um, that's, I think, affected you, you know, maybe probably continues to for a long time. So why was it time? What made the decision? And then also maybe a question I can ask it again is, you know, how did you sort of soldier through the writing process when, when, you know, obviously you probably got to places that dredged up things that, you know, kind of made the the trauma come back to the surface quite a bit. I used to think, Oh, I'll write a book when I'm old. I don't have to worry about like hurting people's feelings. But I don't have, like, a solid answer for why now, except I just felt like I just needed to do it. And I had this feeling like I've never said anything about the way I was raised. And I had this feeling like I've earned the right to tell my story. And so that was kind of where that came from. (laughs) Whether that's valid or not, I don't know. But that was kind of... And what about, um, you know, how did motherhood, your own motherhood play into that? Um, you have a child who's, who's, what, well, is middle school or, or late elementary school? Fifth grade, so yeah, she's okay. in middle so school. Okay, that, so did that factor into, into it at all? I think becoming a mom, obviously it changes you a lot, and makes you reflect more on your own path. It's easier before you become a mom to kind of like just push all that away and be like, I'm just me. Like it doesn't like none of this other stuff is relevant. But then once you become a mom, you're like, Oh no, I'm actually having like a pretty profound impact on this kid's life. And like I could very easily or, and probably, and you know, will mess it up and that's scary. And so, so I'm sure that, kind of made me think a lot more about it and how just how it all kind of transpired yeah and so so yeah part two the 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 decision was made and you and you you know put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and mm-hmm. started doing it and and did you find that you were basically walking back through these memories and and maybe reliving them you know to your detriment or was it was it actually helpful to put it down onto paper, you know, or to, to computer processor? You know, we use these metaphors now, I guess. But, um, you know, was it in the end helpful at all or, or, or probably a little bit of both? Yeah, I would say both. I didn't write it for catharsis, but I would say that it was cathartic to a certain degree. Um, I go back and forth between being scared that no one will read it and then hoping no one will read it. <laughs> but either way, I'm glad I wrote it. And yes, it was also incredibly Taylor sometimes <laughs> Joe's like, remember that year when you didn't sleep for like a year? 
I'm like, yeah, that was hilarious, wasn't it? <laughs> Insane insomnia. Um, it, I wrote it like during the pandemic. So Taylor was in online school and we had just moved and it was just crazy. And um, she would go to ski camp on Fridays because at the time I was like, this seems like a safe thing, you know, because they're wearing masks anyway, they're outside. And so she can socialize. And I had broken my foot. And so I would drive her to ski camp and then sit in the parking lot on Fridays because they don't have school on Fridays here and write for like, you know, six hours while she was at camp. And just the first draft I turned in was just like stream of consciousness gobbledygook, like (laughs) so disorganized. Yeah, just a complete disaster of a manuscript um but and some days i would just like sit in the car and cry for like hours (laughs) uh katie i have a question um about uh eating disorders which um you may be shocked to learn are still a relevant topic in climbing you know so i think that you might be in a unique position of wisdom do you have any advice just born of your own experience or things that you've learned along the way that can help people who are maybe out there struggling with eating disorders who are stuck in a pattern that they feel they can't break. What would you, what would you tell to that Mm -hmm. person? I think from my experience in climbing, a lot of it happens because, you know, you want to climb harder and you, so you think, start thinking about diet as a way to, or like, you know, food intake as a way to climb harder. For me, it was a little bit different because my home life felt so challenging that it felt like something that I could control and have gave me like power over my uh, situation. So it started a little bit differently, but obviously inevitably becomes wrapped up in all of that stuff. So for me, a lot of the healing was getting away from the um, situation that was causing me to need to feel in control, needing to like have something to control. But that being said, I think part of what I wanted to talk about in the book is that whether or not you are someone who's able to get help or whether or not you're someone who has to decide to get better on your own because you don't have those resources. Either way, when you get better, there's like a when you decide you want to get better, there's like a feeling of losing control regardless of how you're, how it started. And there's a lot of shame that comes with that. And so I think part of what I wanted to do was normalize that and talk about that because I didn't talk to anyone about it. And so like when you're getting better, there's like a physiological response that happens. And so if you're if you're trying to heal and you're binging and you can't control how much you're eating, it it feels like very shameful, but it's a normal animal brain response to what your body's been through. And so I think just partly just wanting, I wanted to like normalize that and be like, you know, it's okay. It's not, anything to be ashamed of it's part of the process and and it's hard and then another thing that's really I think very very common is feeling like 
you're not sick enough, you're not bad enough to need help, um, or even just feeling like, oh, it's working, so I should keep doing this. Just knowing that in the end, it's hard to think about the future because in the moment, this is what you're doing and it's hard to think like, oh, you know, I'm going to have osteoporosis when I'm 40 because I do. And when you're 17, it's hard to think about that when you're just kind of like in the moment and this is what's happening in the moment. But just realizing, just realizing that like, um, there are reasons to not do it, even if it's feeling like it's working. I don't know if I'm making very much sense, but, and then also I wanted to give people who don't deal with it a bit of a perspective because, um, from an outside perspective, I'm sure it can be really hard to understand. Like from an outside perspective, you can think like, God, that person must have the most insane willpower. But actually when you're in it, it has nothing to do with willpower. It feels like the most terrifying thing you can think of. And so just trying to like approach people who are dealing with it with a lot of compassion and nurturing and care and just because for me anyway, when I felt cared for, it was easier to eat basically. And when I felt like I was having a finger pointed at me, it made it harder, whether it was from the media saying I had eating disorder or from my family or from a doctor. Well, not that doctors ever actually said that I, <laughs> doctors were totally not helpful, but, <laughs> um, the, for me, when I was around people who were supportive and nurturing and caring, that's when I felt the most safe to eat and take care of my body. I kind of wanted to follow up on that because, um, you know, given that you're a mom, you have a daughter, I have, I have two daughters. So this is a really relevant question to me. You know, it, it's somewhat uh, frightening to be a, a parent of a young girl. And, you know, you read stuff like just how their confidence evaporates at such an early age. And, so um, there seems to yeah. be an endless, uh, an endless maze of ways to to go wrong in terms of raising daughters. And mm -hmm. so, what's your what's your parental approach in light of all all of your experiences? And how do you think about you know empowering your your own daughter in terms of being? Sounds like she's in ski school or whatever athletic thing that is that she's doing in her life. You know, how do you do that in a way that pushes her to be her best, but also, you know, steers clear of the, some of the pressures perhaps that you experienced. And um, maybe that same question applies to eating, confidence, body image, whatever it is. What's your, what's your approach to, to raising um, a young girl? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. I'm certainly fucking it up in a million ways. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I don't, I don't even like doling out advice because I feel like I'm like the least qualified person to <laughs> to be like, here's what I do that's working because I don't know if it's working or not. Well, look at it this way, Katie. <laughs> Just tell us what, you know, like, I guess maybe think about your fears. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about yeah. them now that you're like messing it up. Um, you know, what do you, how do you counsel yourself when, when you're thinking about late at night, like, your sweet little girl sleeping and what are we going to do tomorrow? And, you know, just not necessarily advice, but what are your fears and, and how do you overcome them as far as being a parent um, and having been a child who 
you know, did not get the support that she needed? So a couple of things that I've like heard or read or whatever that I've really taken to heart are, um, it's okay to apologize to your kid, you know, like you're going to mess up. Um, but repairing it with your kid makes a huge, huge difference. And so obviously we all make mistakes as parents, but just going to your kid and being like, Hey, you know, I, I lost my temper or whatever the situation may, may be like repairing, going back and talking about it and repairing those moments with your kid, I think feels important to me just as a person who would have maybe liked to have a little bit of that in, in my life. Um, so that feels important to me. And I think just knowing that, I don't know, making sure I'm telling her that she's valuable and that making sure that she knows that her views are important and it's okay to speak her views. And, you know, if, if she <laughs> talks a certain way to me, I, I'm okay with that because it means that she's strong enough and comfortable enough to express herself. And she's going to need that when she's in a, when she's a teenager and an adult and she's going to need to be able to not be afraid of offending people or um, just be like confident. No, I, I, that really resonates with me. You know, I, I love hearing that because, um, you know, some of the, like, you know, just kind of what you alluded to about tolerating <laughs> pushback or talk back from, from your child is on one level, you feel like you need to stamp that out, but on, there is this deeper uh, awareness that those um, skills that are, or just, you know, those actions that are maybe not ideal as, um, as young kids could turn out to be real assets in terms of confidence and ability to um, advocate for yourself and, you know, have an opinion and, and be able to express it without feeling like they need to, to button up. Yeah. And I think part of it is generational, you know, like in our generation, or I don't know if you guys are younger than me or not, but <clears throat> that I feel like it, it was a lot about like how compliant are your kids, you know, like that's means you're a good parent if your kids are compliant, but I don't know if that's necessarily like a good thing as an adult to have been, I mean, I was a compliant kid and I'm a disaster. So <laughs> I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if that's like, really what you're looking for in parenting for me anyway uh, sometimes I'll think about that I'll just be like I don't know that I really want a complaint kid <laughs> like that doesn't sound good that sounds like a recipe for disaster <laughs> but I don't know like I said I'm not an expert <laughs> you know so you you talked earlier on about how you you bailed from climbing and you know to me it didn't feel as abrupt as I think it probably felt to, to the rest of the world. But you were a professional climber. You were, you know, fairly famous again back then. If people talked about Katie Brown, most everybody knew who we were talking about and what you had done. And then you took several years off, not just took off from climbing, but also, as you said, you didn't pay attention to what was happening. But when you came back, you know, it was the Olympics and, you know, talking about this threat of disordered eating, that's been on everybody's mind still, you know, and maybe the world and, you know, the society knows a little bit more about it and there's probably more resources for people, but it's still happening. You know, you've come forth with this book to talk about it. I think, um, you know, Carolyn Treadway's come forth talking about it. 
you know, Emily Harrington has like, uh, you know, Beth Rodden, who is a contemporary of yours and sort of suffering alongside of you in a lot of ways mm-hmm. has been talking about it. So, you know, is part of the gist of this book in a sense, you know, there's a couple threads in here, family, but also on um, that thread of, of your health and mental health, you know, is that p- part of a motivation is to get this story out there with that, that same idea of like, you know, all these sort of memoirs can be a cautionary tale is, is, is that in your mind of, of opening up to, to connect with some people who maybe are struggling with this right now? Yeah, I mean, I have the whole addendum in the back because I was able to interview Dr. G, who was part of Caroline's film. Um, and so I wanted it to also be a resource for people, whether it's you or someone you know, to kind of maybe better understand the physiological response. Because even for me, like I didn't understand so much about what I had been through. And then um, I would go, when I interviewed Dr. Gaudiani, I would, I was going through my journal and I'd be like, so I'm describing in my journal, like this or this symptom, like, what was that that was happening? And at the time, I felt like I was like going crazy. But then she would be like, well, here's what was medically happening. And so she would just like line it out. And it, um, it just, as like a light bulb, you know, like so much information that was so helpful that would have been helpful at the time. So yeah, I definitely wanted it to be a resource for, for those who know people who are going through sort of similar things or for people who are themselves going through similar things. What's your current relationship with climbing? I don't climb right now because I just don't have time. Mm -hmm. I think... If there was a gym where we lived, I would really love to, like, you know, take an hour or two in the evening and go to the gym. Um, but I don't have that right now, so so I don't climb right now. But before we moved, I had started climbing kind of a lot again, and it was I was really, really enjoying it. I have some stuff, like, with my hands and some things that make it kind of challenging to climb sometimes that I haven't really been able to figure out what exactly is happening. I can only climb like a couple of times a week because I would get like really bad inflammation and stuff. Anyway. It sounds like you're psyched to, to start doing it more than like, you know, you, you took a big break. I guess tell me yeah. what, what it was like first coming back to it. Like when you first were like, Oh, I'm going to try this sport again. It was really fun and super hard. I didn't exercise at all for like seven years <laughs> like not even exaggerating <laughs> um and then I decided I wanted to learn aerial stuff like silks and I um instantly tore my bicep because I thought that I could like do things that I couldn't do because I hadn't exercised <laughs> for several years <laughs> but then I did that for a couple years and it kind of helped give me like a better base of fitness and so then when I started back climbing again um yeah I don't know it was just really really fun and I found that as an older human I'm able to like when I was younger and I would try and like teach clinics or whatever I didn't have words for things that are like I wasn't sure how to like impart knowledge to someone who for whom it didn't like come naturally. But now I feel like it's really cool because um, 
I can be like, oh, I can watch someone climbing and I can actually be like, oh, well, you know, you're coming, you're barn dooring off that because you're pulling just with your arms and you need to like pull with your toe and that will kept lock you in as you're doing that move or like I'll say and or I'll say like envision like if you're trying to do this move envision like your whole body is like a wave and it has to start in your foot and like wave up through your body and and then I'll watch the people that I'm climbing with do that and it'll work for them and it's really cool to be able to I feel like I have a better understanding of how to share like what to do than I did when I was younger, if that makes sense. And it's really cool when when you tell someone that and you're like, this is going to sound crazy, but you have to pretend that your body's a wave and then they do it and it works. And you're like, oh, my God, it worked. <laughs> it's like so cool. <laughs> um, so that's been fun kind of coming back to climbing as an older person. Um, and then, yeah, it's just like a different perspective well, uh, yeah. you know, it's interesting yeah. you said because I, I I actually was thinking about this earlier in the in the interview, but you know, and I know you to be at least your old self and probably a lot of your your current self to be someone who's not necessarily super outgoing. Um, you know, you don't necessarily love to be in big social group situations or anything like that. So, with that as the caveat, have you ever or maybe um, are currently ever thinking about bringing this? this knowledge you have a, I mean, just the knowledge of how to climb, which is what you're talking about right now, but you have this other knowledge about, you know, again, the pitfalls of, of dedicating yourself entirely to performance and the pitfalls of, of being a young girl who's being pushed. You know, it sounds to me like you could bring a lot to a, you know, a coaching situation or a, a group of, you know, a group of girls who are climbing, you know, you, you just seem to have like something to impart that could be a, you know, really beneficial to them, but maybe something that might be beneficial to you too. Have you ever thought about, you know, some sort of mentoring role with, um, especially with sort of girls who are getting into climbing? I have. Yeah. At the same time, I also feel like I need to be coached. So, (laughs) (laughs) cause I feel like in terms, I've done a lot of, exploration in terms of like the inner landscape that I feel like I could impart knowledge to others about but in terms of like the actual like nitty-gritty of training and climbing I know absolutely nothing like nothing I just know how to go rock climbing that's it so in terms of the actual like physicality of climbing outside of being able to kind of watch someone and be like no your body needs to do that that more like intuitive side of it. Um, but I wouldn't have any idea how to like train someone. I know nothing about, you know, like (laughs) training boards or (laughs) systems. Well, look, if, if my kid is, if my kid is 13 years old and, um, I want someone in the gym with them, teaching them how to climb, I want you there. Not, not the board training person. Uh, Honestly, you know, I don't, I have no desire for a kid of the age of 10, 11, 12, 13 to be hearing about that stuff at all, because I think that's literally part of the problem. And so, yeah, so I think, again, I think that you, you might have this ability to step beyond that in a way that would be really healthy for kids who are starting and they can worry about 
the boards and the training, you know, when they become an appropriate age. And, and to me, a, a group of kids that age, it's just inappropriate. And you might be able to have that, again, have that perspective of like, this is, because as soon as you start talking about performance and training, you, you open that door to eating and things like that. And I just, yeah. So just, you know, my own perspective on it, that would be the type of coach I'd want for my kid. Um, and by coach, (laughs) by coach, I'm, I'm using that very liberally, you know, the person in the room making sure that they're having fun and, and not getting hurt would be my idea of a good coach when you have an 11 year old. Um, so anyway, just, just a, just a thought. Yeah. We have a little, um, or I have, I guess a little running club for, for girls Taylor's age. Cause they all slide is kind of funny. Like the elementary school breaks up and they, there's like three different middle school options. And so friends get separated depending on what school they go to. And so I thought it would be a good way to keep the kids kind of together, even though they're going to different schools. And so we have a little running club and sometimes I feel like I'm like, I'm not the best authority figure, but the girls are having fun (laughs) and maybe they're walking more than they're running. So I definitely wouldn't be a good coach in terms of like always getting shit done, but they're having fun. And, um, you know, like we did a scavenger hunt and so they were like running from store to store to like collect their clues and, and stuff like that. And so for me, it's more about, having them enjoy it and i'm not going to be like no you need to start running this is running club (laughs) you know and if they're hiking and chatting i'm more than happy and i want to give them like autonomy to like they got to name their own running club and make their own sweatshirts and like i think that's kind of more what i'm into (laughs) so but it's not like we're not they're not like competitive (laughs) yeah what's your what's your what's your hope and dream what's that people will take away from this book a few different things i mean selfishly i would want i hope that people understand me a little more because i feel like i did a lot of quote-unquote crazy things (laughs) um so there's that piece and then i would hope that people would approach women or anyone regardless of gender with a little more empathy when they seem to be maybe behaving what might seem to be a little erratically or strangely just maybe thinking about looking a little deeper um to see maybe maybe there's something that's going on you know maybe and they're not like intentionally setting out to be a certain way (laughs) like for example the the russian figure skaters that just that just broke my heart because those poor girls they were i could tell they were just like on the brink on the edge and then i watched like a news clip and they interviewed some guy figure skater who from like the 80s and he was saying that they were having a temper tantrum. And I was so upset because I was like, those girls are not having, she's not having a temper tantrum because she didn't win. She's breaking down. She's like 
been pushed to a point where she can't handle it anymore. Like that is so not a temper tantrum. And why would you interview some, like (laughs) some guy? Like, I don't know. It was just really, um, it was very sad. Oh yeah. It was just like, I don't even know how to explain it, but it it just was really heartbreaking. So anyway, yeah, I think I would hope that people could just get an idea of maybe like what's going on for young athletes and and also old podcasters too if you and old if, podcasters <laughs> if you hear us say something that offends you it's there's a lot going on behind the scenes that everyone should be more <laughs> compassionate and empathetic about yes it's true <laughs> Patreon bonus episode for Rope Guns Only. We take you on a journey of sight and sound, of pin scars and off-widths, of slander and rigid definitions as we tackle the mystery of the Salathay's legendary Pitch 19. Once heralded as perhaps the crux of the greatest free climb in the world, Pitch 19 then suddenly disappeared from the record, being sucked into the seething void of obscurity that is the twilight zone of revisionist history. Become a rope gun today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and join us on a dangerous and exciting search for Pitch 19. Was it murdered by a German prince? Was it just conveniently shunned like a difficult in-law? Or is Pitch 19 poised for its harrowing revenge? Join us at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to support the runout and these ridiculous promos. Today's final bit is pulled from the archives of the Davenports, a yacht rock cover band featuring none other than my co-host on bass, Chris Caloose. Today, they're covering Jay Ferguson's 1977 song, Thunder Island.
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Kalous, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, 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 it's, no. no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.